We're in the letter to the Hebrews this morning. So usually I get up and I, I, we have to go through a whole bunch of what the liberals say. Well, today we don't have to worry about that because we're not going to be talking about what the liberals say today. The, the controversy of this book has nothing to do with the liberals. The first question we're going to ask is, who wrote the book? And why do we have to ask that question? Because the book doesn't tell us who wrote it. It's anonymous. And there's really two main positions on who wrote the book. In my reading, this is what I came up with. There's two really main positions. One position says Paul wrote the book. And another position says Paul, it's Paul's ideas, but another person wrote the book. Someone in his inner circle. So he gave them the ideas and they wrote it in their own words. Those are the two main positions. So what I want to do is I want to give you arguments against Paul's authorship. And I want to give you some arguments for Paul's authorship. Just so you can see the two sides of the debate and you can decide for yourself who wrote the book. The first argument against Paul's authorship is the fact that the book is anonymous. Why would that be an argument against Paul being the author? Paul is always, this is Paul. In 2 Thessalonians, he did it twice. So it's unusual for Paul to write a book in which he doesn't tell us who he is. Another argument said that, well, this can't be Paul because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And here in Hebrews, it's clear he's writing to Jews. How would you argue against that one? He did talk to the Jews. He talked to the Jews a lot, actually. He spoke to the Jews quite a bit. When we get to the arguments for, we're going to look at some of those passages where it says it was his custom to go speak in the synagogues. And that's on his missionary journeys when he was evangelizing Gentiles. The next argument against Paul's authorship is the author of this book heard the gospel secondhand. Go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after... It was at the first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the Lord spoke it, and we heard about it through the people who heard it from the Lord. I think this is the strongest argument against Paul's authorship. Because Paul says repeatedly, over and over, where did he get what he taught? Over and over again, he says, I received from the Lord, Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, the opening of the, the Lord's table passage. I deliver to you that which I received. 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel that he preached was the gospel he received from the Lord. And yet here this author of Hebrews seems to point out that he got this information from a second source. From someone other than the Lord, someone who had been an eyewitness to the Lord. I think if you're going to make an argument against Paul being the author of Hebrews, that's probably one of the strongest my opinion. Another one. Hebrews focuses on the high priesthood of Christ. How is that an argument against Paul's authorship? Here's what they say. Nowhere in Paul's epistles, the 13 epistles that we know are from Paul, does he focus on the high priesthood of Christ. And therefore, it's unlikely that he wrote this book because he doesn't talk about this anywhere else. He does mention it in other epistles, but it's very brief, and their argument here is he goes into such detail here that this doesn't seem like it would be Paul. This is, in effect, an argument from silence. This is saying, well, I don't see it being discussed uh, so much in these other epistles, therefore Paul wouldn't have written it here. Uh, Donald Guthrie says, there is no certain knowledge, moreover, as to how Paul would have dealt with the high priest theme had he applied himself to it. Too much emphasis should not perhaps be laid upon these doctrinal differences. Just because he doesn't cover it in one area of the Bible, but he covers it somewhere else, doesn't mean the area he covered it in is not him. Okay, well, what, what's another argument against Paul's authorship? He quotes from the Septuagint. Alright, who remembers? What is the Septuagint? Greek? Greek translation of the Old Testament. The author of the Hebrews quotes exclusively from the Septuagint. But when you read Paul, Paul quotes both the Hebrew and the Greek. And so some people say, well, this is a good, good evidence 
that this was not Paul, because if it was Paul, he should be quoting from the Hebrew as well. And you would think if he's writing to Hebrews, quoting from the Hebrew text would be helpful. Last argument against Paul. The author is in prison and is expecting to be released. Now, I kind of front-loaded this because this really depends on how you date the book. You have on your handout, I put the 60s for the date, the whole decade. And it depends on where you put the authorship of the book. If you put it at the end of the book, which is where a lot of these say it, if you put it at the end of the decade, 67 to 69, this argument begins to make sense. Where was Paul in 67? Right before his death. He's in prison in Rome. And what book can we go to to find out what he was feeling like in his last and final imprisonment? Second Timothy. And in Second Timothy, what was his expectation? Was he expecting to be released? He was expecting to die, right? And so if they date the book in the late 60s, they would say that this cannot be Paul because this author is imprisoned and he's expecting to be released. Or at least that's what it seems like. Uh, Hebrews 10, he mentions prisoners a couple times. And he tells them, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Verse 34, I'm sorry. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. There's a mention of prisoners. Chapter 13, verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. Released from what? Yeah, and how does he know? He's probably there with him. Released from prison. With whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. So this author is imprisoned and he's expecting to be released. But if this is at the end of the 60s, this is, there's no way this is Paul. This would have to be a different writer because Paul at the, in 2 Timothy had no expectation of being released. What do you think of these arguments? You think they're pretty good? Pretty strong? A couple of them are decent. This last one could be pretty good depending on how you date the book. Where in the 60s you place the book. I think that is the strongest argument out of all of them. That's the one that really... Mm. The author heard it secondhand. That's definitely not Paul. If Paul... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the hardest one for me. Okay, well let's look at some arguments for Paul's authorship. The first one is the external evidence. Now, depending on who you read, a lot of people will say this is not a very strong argument. Because in the early church, there was no set and firm tradition. We looked at other books where it was like unanimous. Paul wrote this book. All the way through until the 17th and 18th century when the liberals got a hold of it. You don't have that with this book. But there is still strong external evidence that Paul wrote the book. The early witnesses that we have attribute this book to Paul. One case, for example, would be Clement of Alexandria in the 2nd century attributed the book to Paul. Louis Burkhoff, the oldest and most explicit tradition is that of Alexandria, where Clement testified that the epistle was written by Paul in the Hebrew language and was translated by Luke into Greek. Now, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Clement's conclusion that was written in Hebrew, and when we talk about the language of the book of Hebrews, you'll see why. But there you have the tradition that this was from Paul. Origen said that it contained the thoughts of Paul, but it was written by one of his close associates. So Paul came up with the idea, and then Paul had someone else sit down and put it in their own words. Again, I don't agree with Origen on that, because that just doesn't sound like Paul. Paul used an amanuasis, he used a scribe constantly, but the scribe always wrote his words, not their own. Edmund Hebert. Clement and Origen, both familiar with the traditions of those before them, agree in regarding the Greek epistle as Paul's only in a secondary sense, yet in their writings both use the epistle as being Paul's without qualification. Origen was a Hebrew and Greek scholar. He was one of the only two early church fathers who knew Greek and Hebrew. Did anyone know the second one who knew Greek and Hebrew? Jerome. Donald Guthrie. Subsequent to Origen, the Eastern Church generally did not doubt the canonicity of the epistle and indeed assumed its Pauline authorship. The early church historian Eusebius said that Paul had 14 epistles. Why? Because he included Hebrews in his list and said it was from Paul. 
The Chester Beatty Papyrus, also known as P46. We've actually looked at it before. We'll look at it in a few minutes. It actually attributes the epistle to Paul by placing Hebrews right before Romans. And he, they lump all the epistles of Paul together, and it lumped it in with Romans, or right next to Romans. And in fact, the majority of early Greek manuscripts, when you go through their, those manuscripts, Hebrews is placed within the epistles of Paul. It's placed right after 2 Thessalonians. I think that's very strong evidence of what the early church thought about this book. Okay, so that's the external evidence. Another argument. This author was in prison. Sound familiar? This could be an argument for Paul's authorship. We've already looked at the passage that says he was in prison. How is this an argument for him being in prison? Well, if you date the book in the early 60s, this is an argument for Paul's authorship. Paul was in prison in 63 AD in his first Roman imprisonment. He was released in 63. So if you date the book early, what was Paul's expectation during his first imprisonment? I'm getting out. I'm going to be released soon. I'm coming to you soon. And the end of Hebrews, the author is saying, I'll be there soon. So depending on how you date the book, this could be an argument for Paul's authorship. Doctrinal similarities. We looked at, well, he doesn't talk about the high priest, the high priesthood of Jesus in other books, but there are significant doctrinal similarities. First, the preeminence of Christ. Christ being greater than every other person out there. Anyone think of a passage in Paul that talks about how Christ is superior? Colossians. Yes, Colossians 1, 14 through 19. Another one. The apostles are authenticated through signs and miracles. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, verse 3, we looked at this a minute ago. He says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. The signs and wonders, the miracles there are the affirmation of the message preached, which is another reason why we don't need signs and wonders today. The message has already been affirmed. This fits perfectly with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So the author here agrees with Paul that signs and wonders are a way to affirm and validate the message given. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Was that, uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask for the citation when you said, which mean, therefore, we don't need signs and wonders just said a second ago. 2 Corinthians 12, 12? <laughs> yeah. That would prove who is a real apostle. Ephesians 2.20 says the apostles were the foundation of the church. You don't lay the foundation for 2,000 years. You lay the foundation once, and then you're, you're done, right? Okay, another doctrinal similarity. The writer of the Hebrews uses Israel's wanderings as an example of believers. Israel was wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and Hebrews seems to use that as an example to believers today. Uh, you can see this in Hebrews 3. We're not going to read the whole sections. Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 8, but I think if we just read one or two verses here, you'll, you'll see it. Hebrews 3, verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. He's pointing back to the Old Testament and the children of Israel in the wilderness, and he's using that as an example of believers in his time. Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, in two different verses, he says, these things happened to them so that you would learn from their example. This was for your instruction. Perfectly consistent with what Paul would write. Another similarity. He emphasizes faith. Hebrews 10, verse 38. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Anybody know where that's a quote from? Close. Huh? Uh-huh. Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2. This verse is only quoted three times in the New Testament. Once here, and twice by Paul. And in all three, it's a reference to salvation by faith, and it's used to support the argument that faith is a requirement. 
perfectly consistent with what Paul would write. And then another similarity here, another argument for Paul's, we're done with the doctrinal similarities. This author was a close companion of Timothy. We already saw at the end where he mentions Timothy and he calls him our brother. Timothy was a close companion of Paul. And he's a close companion of the author to the book of Hebrews. And he was a Gentile, yeah. He's speaking to Jews, but he's speaking to Jews who have been converted. We'll look in a minute about who they are, but they have been converted, and it would seem like they're in a Gentile church, and they're living in Gentile lands, and so they would know who Timothy was, especially if, even if you take Paul, he's not the author, and one of his companions did. If the author's in the close circle of Paul, he knows Timothy. But I think this could be a strong argument for this is Paul, because Paul also cites Timothy and says he's our brother. Same kind of language used. We talked about this one a minute ago. Paul preached to the Jews. Hold your spot there in Hebrews. We're coming right back. Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 5. On the first missionary journey, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God, word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. There it is. He gets there. He starts preaching to who? Jews. Acts 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. Acts 17, verse 1 again. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So yes, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul also spent a great deal of time talking to Jews and reasoning with them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, we can go back to Hebrews now. So I think Paul preaching to the Jews, strong argument here. One of the things that Hebrews focuses on is the Levitical system and the sacrifices. If you think of Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, we'll look at some of those today. The author of... Hebrews had a strong knowledge of the Levitical system. And Paul was a Pharisee. He said, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. He also had a strong knowledge of the Levitical system, and he had the education necessary to write a book about the Levitical system. Robert Gromacki. Few others would have had the background to compose such a book heavy with allusions to Exodus and Leviticus. How many of you pull your illustrations from Leviticus when you want to illustrate something from the Bible? How many of you go back to Leviticus? <laughs> Not many, because you really have to have a firm foundation in that text. Paul had that foundation. And then the final argument for Paul, he expresses similar concerns at the end of the book. At the end of the book, we're not going to be here long. Chapter 13. I'm just going to cite these verses. Chapter 13, verse 18, he requests that his readers pray for him. Same verse, verse 18, he says he wants to maintain a good conscience. He did the same thing in Acts 24, 2 Timothy 1. He identifies God the Father as the God of peace in verse 20 of Hebrews 13. He did the same thing in, in Romans 15, verse 33, Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. He pronounced a benediction of grace. The very last verse, verse 28, grace be with you all. He did the same thing in Philemon, verse 25. The closing of his letter is very Paul-esque. This sounds like Paul. All that to say this, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I prefer Paul. There are other people that they claim could have written it. Uh, Barnabas is one of them. I think Apollos is one of them. If you read some introductions that they give you kind of a list of them and they have some arguments for them, I'm just not convinced on any of them. Yes? imply someone really is familiar with it, lived it, but yeah. also that it's someone who's older, and Timothy is younger, and a younger man probably is not going to have the depth of knowledge, even if he's very driven, yeah. simply because of his age, he's not going to have the depth of knowledge that an older guy has. Yeah. Uh, either that, or he would have had a significant theological training. 
and we don't have any reference to Timothy ever being um, being trained in that way. So I, I lean towards it's Paul. Like I said, my one big mm, is Hebrews 2, 3, where it says we got the second hand. That's the one part that really, yes. Yeah, uh, I think that comes from Clement because he said that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and then Luke translated it into Greek. When we talk about the Greek text, I'll tell you why that doesn't work for me, why that doesn't seem to fit, but we'll get there in just a moment. Okay, where was the author when he wrote the book? Oh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Where was he writing to? What location was he sending this letter to? Answer, we don't know. We assume it was in one of the Gentile churches, but we really don't know. It does. The book gives us no indication on where his recipients are located. It's not like in the book of Romans where he tells us, or the book of Galatians, where he says to the churches of Galatia, makes it nice and easy. This author doesn't do that. Doesn't tell us where he's writing to. Where was it written from? Where was the author when he wrote it? Hebrews 13, verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. So he was in Italy. Somewhere. Was he in Rome? Could be. Was he in Naples? Could be. We don't know. He was in Italy. Others have suggested in, that he was in and around Jerusalem because he's making, he's writing from Jerusalem because he's making all these references to the Mosaic Law. Don't think that works. Verse 24 says he's in Italy. When did he write? What was the date of the writing? Well, I've already kind of given it away because we talked about the 60s. There's nothing in the book that tells us the dating. But we know that the latest this book could have been written is around 95 AD. How do we know that? Anybody ever heard of Clement of Rome? In the end of the book of Philippians, there's a reference to a guy named Clement. And they believe that that is Clement of Rome. Clement wrote a letter in 96 AD, and in that letter, he references the book of Hebrews. So therefore, the book of Hebrews would have had to be written and in circulation by 95 AD for him to have access to it. So what's another way we can kind of narrow this down? Well, um, it seems like he had to have been writing this before 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? Temple's destroyed. Might that be relevant to our author in the book of Hebrews? Of all the books, if this book was written after 70 AD, this is the one that should say, hey, look, the temple's been destroyed. Why would he have had to say that? Or why would he have said that? Go over to Hebrews chapter 8. His whole point in this book is the old covenant is passing away. And it's being done away with. The sacrifices of that system are being done away with. The priesthood of that system has been eclipsed. There's a greater priest. His name is Jesus. There's a greater sacrifice. We'll look at that in a minute. If the temple is gone, that would be a really strong point in his argument. Look, I'm telling you that it's all going away, and look what the Romans just did to your temple. They just destroyed all the records of the genealogy, so you don't even know who your priests are anymore. But yet the author says nothing about it. In Acts, not Acts, Hebrews 8, verse 4. Now, if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Notice the present tense language. They are currently offering gifts according to the law. Chapter 8, verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. If it's after 70 AD, it's already disappeared. If you tie in the purpose of the book, which is these guys are thinking about going back to Judaism. Going back to the old system. And he's making the argument that system is passing away. And if the temple is gone, what are you going back to? You can't go back to it. It's gone. So the best conclusion is that this book was written sometime in the 60s. How do you narrow down when in the 60s? That gets a little bit harder. Hebrews 12, verse 4, he seems to imply that there is persecution coming and that they've already experienced some persecution. 
Hebrews 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. We'll see later that they've lost their possessions. They've had some level of persecution to this point. That would put this in the 60s because they weren't Gentiles weren't experiencing persecution until about the 60s. That persecution really ramped up in 64 AD. What happened in 64 AD? See who's our historians. Nero. What did Nero do? We got some historians in here. I like it. Yeah, he set the city of Rome on fire and then he blamed the Christians for it. And then he started a persecution. Which means I think you can date this book somewhere in the early 60s, around 63 to 64. And again, that fits with Paul being the author because Paul's in prison in 63. Okay, so I, I would date this in the early 60s. Hebert dates it in 64. I think you can go a little earlier and say 63, 62. All right, so what do we know about his audience? Well, the first thing we know about his audience, his readers, is that they know the author. Unlike us, they know who's writing this book. Hebrews 13, we looked at this, 18 and 19, he says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. He knows his audience, they know him. And this book, the book of Hebrews, isn't just a book. It's a letter. And the closing of Hebrews is the closing of a typical letter. And that's relevant because if you write a book, you're just writing a book to anybody. He didn't write a book to anybody. He wrote this to a specific group of people. People that he knows. And this too has been debated. They say, well, it doesn't have the opening salutation that Paul normally gives. Well, 1 John doesn't have an opening salutation either. Some people say, well, the salutation was lost, or an editor came back and removed it. Well, there's no evidence for that anywhere. That's just, that's just pure speculation. Like 1 John, this letter doesn't have the typical beginning, but the ending of it is clearly a closing of a letter. Look at the language in uh, Hebrews 13, verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly... I have written to you specifically, I've written to you briefly, and I'm writing to you to exhort you. Edmund Hebert. Like a true letter in its present form, it appears definitely to have been occasion-inspired. It is grounded in the truths which were part of the common Christian confession and arose out of the author's earnest desire to meet the specific needs of the people to whom it was first sent. And throughout the book, he, he addresses specific problems and concerns he has with his audience. Hebrews 3.12, he tells them to watch over your heart unless you become unbelieving and you have an unbelieving heart. Guard yourself. In Hebrews 5, verse 11, he tells them that they are dull of hearing and slow in their growth. Hebrews 5.11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You've been a Christian for long enough now. You should be able to stand up and teach by now. And yet, I'm still having to give you baby food. You should be on the solid meat, but you're not. You're slow of growth. He encourages them to be diligent, not to be sluggish. In Hebrews 6, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope so that you will not be sluggish. This is a letter written to people that he knows. They know him. This is a personal letter. And he exhorts them over and over and over again. There's so much exhortation that some people say, this isn't a letter, it's a sermon. I think it's a letter. I think the closing of this makes it a letter. But if you want to say it's a sermon, Edmund Hebert has a position for you to take. Here's what he says. The contents of Hebrews, however, suggest that it is a homily cast into epistolary form. It's a sermon made into a letter. The reading of Hebrews reminds one of an animated sermon, and at times it rises to magnificent eloquence. Um, the, the danger of calling it a sermon is a sermon could be made for just about any congregation. I can take a sermon, I can preach it in just about every congregation I walk into. 
where a letter is a little bit more specific and targeted and personal. But this could have been, you, you could say, well, this is a, a letter that is sermon-esque for his readers, right? So who was he writing to? Jews, Hebrews, yeah. The oldest manuscripts all have the same title. And the title is Two Hebrews. We talked about the Chester Beatty papyrus, P46. That's it. For the Greek scholars in the room. Two Hebrews. <laughs> Proof. Now, this might suggest that this was written to Jews in Jerusalem. And you might think, well, it's two Hebrews, therefore they spoke Hebrew. But the letter itself would contradict the idea that they speak and read Hebrew. Because the writer uses very elegant and very sophisticated Greek. Brooke Westcott, anybody remember the name Westcott ring a bell for anybody? Westcott and Hort. The language of the epistle is both in vocabulary, style, pure, and more vigorous than that of any book in the New Testament. This is really good Greek. And you really got to know your Greek to read it. A.T. Robertson. The vocabulary like the style is less like the vernacular Koine than any book in the New Testament. Koine was the common level Greek. It was the ordinary man's Greek. It was street Greek. This is not normal Koine. Luke wrote in a more of an academic form. And this surpasses, I would say, even probably Luke in its form. Edmund Hebert, the language of Hebrews is that of a practiced scholar. It shows everywhere the traces of care and effort. The imagery of the epistle is drawn from many sources and is singularly vivid and expressive. This is a scholar, and this is why I say this was not a translation of a Hebrew text, because you don't get this kind of Greek off a translation. What are some things that make this um, unique? Well, it has 157 unique Greek words that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. And the title there, to Hebrews, is likely just a reference to their race. They were Jewish by birth. But they were Jews living in a Hellenized world. They were living in a, in a Greek culture, in one of the Gentile lands. We don't know which one. And the letter seems to assume that they accepted the Old Testament as authoritative, which would be what the Jews would accept. And they had a clear understanding, not only of the Mosaic Law, but of the sacrificial system. T. Reese, who is a commentator, said, The entire message of the epistle, the dominant claims of Christ and the Christian faith, rest upon the supposition that the readers held Moses, Aaron, the Jewish priesthood, the Old Covenant, and the Levitical ritual in the highest esteem. This sounds like he's writing to Jews, ethnic Jews who were later converted and became Christians. The author cast the patriarchs of the Old Testament as their fathers in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. He says, long ago, to the fathers and the prophets, he just mentions them as the fathers. And he assumes that his readers know exactly who he's referring to, the patriarchs of the Old Testament. If he's writing to Gentiles, he wouldn't do that. Okay, what do we know about his readers? We know they're Jews. We know they speak Greek, they read Greek, they're in the Gentile lands. What do we know about them specifically from the letter? Well, the author, the author intended to visit them. Hebrews 13, 19 and 23, both of them mention he wants to come and visit them. We know that they heard the gospel from one of the disciples of the Lord. One of the apostles likely went to them and gave them the gospel. We know that because they said we heard it from those who heard it from Christ. We also know that because signs and wonders were performed in their midst. That sounds like an apostolic visit. This could have been one of the churches that Paul visited that we've talked about over the last several months that Paul visited on his missionary journeys. And the author believed them to be Christians. The author assumed that they were true believers. Hebrews 3, 1, he calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. He calls them brethren. In Hebrews 6, 9, he calls them beloved. These are terms that you would use for someone who is a believer. We already saw this, Acts 2, verse 4, they saw signs and wonders. We saw a few minutes ago in Hebrews 5, I said Acts 2 again. <laughs> Hebrews 5, verse 12, they were spiritually immature. They weren't growing, they were dull. He's writing to a specific group of Jews that's in the midst of a local congregation. 
He's not writing to the entire congregation. And we know that because if he was writing to the church, the entire congregation, he would have said to the church, or he would have written like Philippians, to the elders and to the deacons or to the leaders. But he's not writing to the leaders because he says these guys aren't teaching, and they should be. They should be mature enough to teach. And in Hebrews 13, 17, he tells them, obey your leaders. This is a specific group of Jews that's probably in a Gentile church somewhere, and they're considering abandoning the faith and going back to Judaism. And the author believes them to be Christian, and so he's encouraging them, please don't do that. Uh, Hebrews 10, 32 and 33, When after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They suffered for the gospel. They suffered for their profession. They lost possessions. In verse 34, uh, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. But they were wavering in their faith, likely because of the persecution. Hebrews 10, verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you. Have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You're saying you're a believer, but if you're a believer, you need to endure. You need to persevere. But some of them were drifting away. And in 2.1, he tells them, so that we do not drift away. I don't want you to turn from the profession you've made. And throughout the book, these I do want to show you. Throughout the book, chapter 3, he says, hold fast your confession. Chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confession. Chapter 3, verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. What do you notice about that phrase? We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast. Did you have some? Which means if you don't hold fast, you are not a partaker of Christ. Keep that in mind. The interpretive challenge, that'll, be, that'll matter. Okay. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 10, verse 23, he makes the same statement. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Don't give up on the confession that you've made. You've professed Christ, now hold on to it. And that brings us to the purpose. What's the purpose of the book? Jewish Christians who were considering safety in Judaism, were instructed and exhorted to progression, steadfastness, endurance, and maturity by looking to Jesus, the Son of God, and great high priest, the better way. This idea of being better, being superior, he cast the Christian faith and Jesus as being superior to everything about Judaism. He is the final revelation of God, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Christianity offers a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19 for the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. Why is it a better hope? Because it's a better covenant. The new covenant is better than the Mosaic. Chapter 7, verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Same thing in chapter 8, verse 6. He is the mediator of a better covenant which has enacted on better promises. So much better than the old. Don't run back to the old. And why is it better? Because the new covenant can bring purification. 7 verse 23. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own and then for the sins of his people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This sacrifice actually works. He's a better high priest. We just read that. There's another one in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 24. Not only is he a better high priest, he's a compassionate high priest. Why is he compassionate? Chapter 2, verse 17 says he was tempted in all ways as we are tempted because now that he's been tempted, he can have compassion on you when you are tempted. He's a better sacrifice. In chapter 10, he makes an argument that's really important. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, 
by the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The Levitical priest would go in and offer sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. The point is, it didn't work the first time. And the fact that they have to re-offer it and re-offer it and re-offer it proves it's ineffective. But, Christ made a sacrifice that is perfect. That doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. One sacrifice, you're done. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. He doesn't have to do this over and over again. It's a perfect sacrifice. And now in chapter 10, verse 19, because of that sacrifice, now you have access to the throne room of God. You can enter into the presence of God with confidence and with boldness far better than the old Mosaic Covenant. I have seven minutes. <laughs> Let's go to the interpretive challenge. Hebrews chapter 6. This passage has caused a lot of people a lot of consternation, so that's why I want to make sure we got to it. Hebrews 6, let's start in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. How many of you have read that passage before and said, what in the world? Let's talk about this. What does this mean? Who is he talking about here? Well, the Arminians would tell you that he's talking about true Christians who lose their salvation. That if you are a Christian today, this passage says you can lose your salvation. You can mess it up. Look at verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this is the Armenian argument, by the way, not mine, they would argue this sounds like regeneration. You've been enlightened. The veil has been lifted. Now you understand. They would point to Hebrews 10.32, but remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. After being enlightened, after you were regenerated. This seems to point back to their conversion. Verse 4 again, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the heavenly gift. To taste it is not just to be around it. To taste it is to personally experience the heavenly gift. And they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They would say, look, see, they have the Holy Spirit. These must be believers. Now, the, how many of you this sounds compelling so far? You see where they're going. And this is the argument that you hear and you're like, oh, that, that sounds like it's true. Okay, here's the problem. When he says they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, this is a unique phrase that is nowhere used to describe believers. The term does not refer to possessing the Holy Spirit. It refers to being in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. A business partner. How does that work? Well, if I'm an unbeliever and I'm sitting in the church and I'm giving money to the church and the church is evangelizing people, I'm a business partner. The Holy Spirit's in the church and I'm funding their operation. And I'm partaking of all the blessings of being around sanctified Holy Spirit indwelt people. This word is never used to describe possessing the Holy Spirit. It means you're an associate, a business partner. And if this were to be describing the possession of the Holy Spirit, it is totally unique in all of the New Testament. Because nowhere in the New Testament does it say you are cooperators with the Holy Spirit. It says you are a possessor, that the Spirit lives within you. 
This is not the language of a person who has the Spirit. Verse 5, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, taste refers to they've taken it in. The Old Testament relates the word of God to food on a regular basis. And he said, well, that sounds like a believer. Yeah, that also sounds like a whole bunch of unbelievers too. There are unbelievers who sit in church and love the preaching of the word. Right. You're just not, you're not converted. Your life hasn't changed. But they love the word. It doesn't require that they're believers. The word was preached. And that word was preached with the powers of the ages to come. That is to say, that word was preached and was validated by the signs and wonders we talked about earlier. This does not have to be talking about believers. And you say, okay, well, that's fine. That's your opinion on what those words mean. But the author illustrates it right after that. Uh, well, let me get to verse 6. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Fallen away, they've turned back. They failed to keep their commitment to follow through on the commitment. The verb here indicates this is a permanent falling away, like in John 6 when it says they turned and left. Same idea. This is a permanent. There's a huge argument on what it means by impossible to renew them to repentance. What does the word impossible mean? Why well, I looked it up, you know what it means? Impossible. That's what it means. Okay? They cannot be renewed to repentance. Let's not make this complicated. That's what the word means. And in turning away, they crucify him again. Peter O'Brien says this phrase, it alludes to an entire pattern of disobedience and faithlessness following upon first deliverance. They supposedly have a conversion experience. They seem to show this outward change, but in reality, in their private life, they're living the same sinful life that they were before. Nothing in their life changed. How do I prove that? Verse 7. Here's the illustration. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for those whose sake it has been tilled, receives a blessing from God. Rain here pictures the word of God being preached. Like, you know, throwing seed. And the rain goes into the ground, that would be your heart. And for some people, it produces useful vegetation. What is useful vegetation? It's fruit. That's useful vegetation. It's fruit. And one of the fruits of this conversion is perseverance. We saw that in Hebrews 3.6, Hebrews 3.14. If you persevere, if you continue in your prof profession, then you become partakers, then you are partakers. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. Parable of the sowers. Some was sowed on good good ground, some was sowed on rocky ground, some was sowed on ground with thorns and thistles and was choked out. Same message. Verse 8, But if he yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. If the heart produces bad fruit, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. And it's good for only one thing. It's good for the fire. It's good for destruction. Matthew 3.10, Matthew 7.19, John 15.6, we don't have time. Just go through the New Testament where Jesus talks about bad fruit and what happens. So I don't think the Arminian position works. I don't think it fits the text. There's another position. These are near Christians. That is to say they came really close to becoming Christian. They just never actually committed to Christ. I don't think that works. This is MacArthur's position. And he holds that there's three groups of people, three audiences. Believers, non-believers, and people who want to be believers but haven't fully committed and he says this is referring to people who are almost there. I don't think that works because the author clearly believes that these are believers. He's talking to them as brethren. He's talking to them and speaking of them as though they have made a solid profession. And in fact, he tells them, hold fast your confession. These are people who have professed Christ already. So the author seems to believe they're at least professing believers. This hope we have as the anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one who enters in, uh, within the veil. Yeah, he's talking about them as believers. So I don't think the first or the second option works. Uh, there is another passage, Hebrews 10. This is the other one that confuses people. Notice verse 23, hold fast our confession. 
they made a confession of faith. I do want to point out verse 25, not forsaking of our own, assembling together. A key part of this passage is fellowship of the body to avoid apostasy. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully, there are some people who say, well, look, I went over here and I did this sin again and I did it intentionally. I purposely did it. That means I'm not a believer. Look, Hebrews 10, 26. That's not what that means. This is referring not to one or two times. This is not referring to a, a Christian who struggles with a sin. This is referring to a person who intentionally, as a lifestyle, embraces their sin. There's a difference between fighting your sin and hating it and embracing it and living in it. You guys with me? And what he's talking about here is a person who embraces sin. We know that because of the word he uses and the form that it's in. It's continual, ongoing, perpetually returning back to their sin. They've embraced it as a lifestyle. And in fact, if you look in verse 28, he says, By doing so, they have trampled underfoot the Son of God and have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. To trample underfoot, if you take the flag of a nation and you throw it on the ground and you stomp on it, what are you saying about that flag? It's worthless. It's trash. And what he says is, what he's saying here is by turning to their sin and embracing their sin, they're stomping on Jesus. And they've regarded as unclean, as worthless, the blood of the covenant. They're rejecting Christ. He says if they go on sinning, end of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What's he talking about here? Is he saying that the sacrifice of Christ is not sufficient for you? No, what he's saying is if you go back to your sin, you've rejected that sacrifice. And there is no other sacrifice that can save you. The Levitical sacrifices can't save you. So if you reject the sacrifice of Christ, you have no more sacrifices. There's nothing left for you. To turn back to your sin is a rejection of that sacrifice, and therefore you have no hope. So I think both of these passages are talking about the apostasy of professing Christians. People who have an outward claim to Christianity, but their life never indicates any change. They've never been converted. Does that clear these two up for you? So, so false converts. False converts. That's where I would take. Questions? We're five minutes over, so <laughs> let me pray. I'll let you go. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. Um, regardless of who wrote it, it is a fantastic book, worthy of our study. And it's so wonderful to have Christ presented to us as being superior, as supreme, as his sacrifice, as the only true sacrifice that can save. And we just ask that you would help all of us to hold fast our confession and to continue to trust in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.